it's not as simple as asking people what they want, because frankly, people don't know what they want. We don't know what we want. We can speculate. We can guess what we think it is that we might want. But as human beings, if we look at our psychology, we're not good at knowing what it is that we want. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we are talking to all of you who have a product or service to offer, or, or who want to someday. Uh, you, like me, are working hard to create something people want, right? Or you already have. You build something, and then you go out, offer it to the world, and hope you got it right. Well, what if you could just ask people what they want, then provide it to them as they exchange millions of their dollars for what you have to offer, exactly what they want? Well, today we talk with Ryan Levesque. He has become famous with his ask method. It's simple, but not easy. To ask people what they want assumes they know what they want, and people often don't. We often don't. We usually don't, at least not fully. But we do know what we don't want, or we know what problems we deal with that we wish would be solved. That's really the punchline of this, the foundation, kind of. I mean, you also just can't ask anyone, even in your audience or demographic. You have to ask the right people, even amongst them, which is what you're going to hear about some today. We have an incredibly simple concept that's not super easy, though, and that's what we talk about. Um, if you do figure it out, though, it really has an aspect of a magic touch. So in this conversation, we first hear Ryan's story. What took him from a young guy studying neuroscience because his parents wanted him to get a, you know, a secure degree and a good job uh, to making six figures for a big insurance company to ditch it all to sell jewelry from China made out of Scrabble pieces and origami. True story that we'll hear about to a few more things, but then to significant fame and success where he is today using his ask method and helping entrepreneurs. That's what we get into in the latter part of the show. And honestly, folks, it is just brilliant. Uh, actually, I'm going to implore you to go see what's happening right now. He has a once a year master class that uh, you can go see it at ask method, ASK method, askmethod.com slash Ziggler and look at joining this master class. in there. You'll find the majority of literally the entire team of Ziggler participating. And we're in there as students for all of our endeavors. Well, Ryan's used this ask method to help build multimillion dollar businesses in 23 different industries himself, generating over a hundred million dollars in sales in the process. And his student entrepreneurs have used the ask method in thousands of different industries to launch and scale their businesses online. Just a, a really valuable conversation and a lot of fun as well. Again, uh, you can go check it out at askmethod.com slash Ziggler. So before I bring you this conversation with Ryan Levesque, I have some great resources for you. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon. Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon it really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous. And I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled-in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. 
Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, friends, here then I bring you Ryan Levesque and his personal development story and how he came into finding the power of asking. Here we go. Ryan, man, it's a gift to have you on the show and, uh, you have done a lot. I mean, you're a best-selling author, multi-million dollar business, happily married, two kids. Your Facebook page just puts a smile on my face. I, I know so many people there. It's kind of like the cream of the crop of today's business and life leaders and influencers. And, uh, so you're doing well, but you have a story like anyone else. You didn't wake up at this spot. And I actually, in my, in my hunting around saw that there was a time way in the back when you were a kid going to school, studying neuroscience. So yeah. there, cause I want to see what's, what's the journey that got you to this point. Take us back to that spot. Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, Kevin, it's an honor to be here. Really, really looking forward to our conversation here today. Uh, so, so for me, my, my story is pretty simple. I mean, I, I grew up in very modest, humble circumstances. Uh, I'm, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Uh, both my parents are blue collar workers. My dad worked nights as a shipping clerk my entire life. Uh, and my mom cut hair uh, in the basement of our house. They, my parents converted the, the bathroom in our basement uh, into a, a shop where my mom had one little sink and she cut people's hair for a living. And so, um, you know, I grew up very blue collar. And so, um, gosh, when I uh, uh, got into college, it was a really big deal. Um, when I got into an, an Ivy League college, it was just like my parents were so incredibly proud. And, uh, and I thought I was going to become a doctor. So I, I, I thought I'd studied neuroscience. Um, and so I studied neuroscience uh, in college. And in that process, um, became really fascinated with uh, traditional Chinese medicine, the neuroscience of traditional Chinese medicine, which led, which led me on a journey to fall in love with the language Chinese, with, with, with Chinese, with Mandarin Chinese. And uh, so much so that I, I, I studied abroad in China. I lived abroad in China. Uh, after graduating from college, I spent five years, my wife and I spent five years living in China. And uh, it led me to on this path to want to pursue business and launching my own business and becoming an entrepreneur. So I know we all have these kind of fun winding roads. Um, you know, I'll tell more about my story, but I'll, but I'll, I'll say this. My parents uh, were a little disappointed that their son didn't go off to become a neurosurgeon and instead is doing what he's doing now today. Um, but uh, uh, but but gosh, it's been a, it's been a fun, wild ride. Well, so yeah, that for coming from your folks, I mean, so your mom, so she's a, she's a basement entrepreneur down there. I mean, was that literally a part of what sparked the interest in business and entrepreneurship? Was that a catalyst maybe? It was so funny in, in, in my life is I had, so my mom was a basement entrepreneur, as you've described it, solopreneur. Started, she was a, a hairstylist and she said, I want to go off on my own. My, my customers love me. I want to open up my own little shop. Um, and on the other side of it, my dad, my father, uh, has been, was a union employee his entire life. 
right? Wow. So the antithesis of entrepreneurship, just, you know, union job, safety, uh, pension, retirement, that whole thing. So my entire life, there's been, the, there was this tug back and forth. And I remember growing up, you know, money was really tight. And my parents often just talked about uh, security, right? Like going, going after what's safe and secure and don't take risks, do the safe and secure bet. And we always talked about my dad's job and, and how it was safe and, you know, how he took care of the family. Um, and so I had all these mixed messages. And I think, you know, growing up, there was this interesting tension where I was a very independent spirit. I wanted to do my own thing. Um, but at the same time, I had this voice, like I think so many of us have in the back of our heads, which is like that fear of failure, right? Like we have the messages that our parents, you know, put into our brains when we're little kiddos and that lasts like a really long time. And I remember my, um, uh, my folks, when I told them, when I told them I was quitting my job, I had a, a six figure job working in insurance in China, very good job. I was on a fast track to, um, you know, very uh, lucrative career. And, and get this, Kevin. So I had to tell my parents. So this is in 2008, in the wake of the, the world financial crisis. The company that I was working for was AIG, the insurance company. And I don't know if you remember this, but AIG was one of the companies that um, the, the US government had to bail out. And I literally woke up um, one day, walked to my office, and the Wall Street Journal Asia edition headline said, AIG to file for bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And that's the moment where I found out the company I was working for was at risk of going under. And so uh, in the meantime, I was thinking about maybe starting my own thing. I didn't know what that looked like. And, and uh, I was burnt out. I was, I was uh, living out of hotels. Uh, my job was basically opening up sales offices for uh, AIG in China. So I'm on a plane like flying to Dalian one day, uh, Harbin the next day, Guangzhou the next day, just like all across China. And I was burnt out. And so uh, I told my parents, I said, um, you know, mom and dad, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start my own business. And the first business we started, Kevin, was uh, uh, in the information publishing space. So teaching okay. people um, how to do something. And the thing, the niche, the first niche that we went into, uh, you're, this is not a joke, uh, is teaching people. I say we, my wife and I, mm -hmm. teaching people how to make jewelry with Scrabble tiles and origami paper. So I had to have this conversation with my parents where they say, okay, wait, time out a second. So you went to school for neuroscience. We think you're going to become a doctor and be a neurosurgeon. And then you say, you're not going to do that. You're going to go to China instead. And that's fine. You're working in finance where, you know, we're okay with that. You have this job. Okay. And you're going to quit that whole life. And you're going to do what? You're going to teach people. You're going to sell eBooks online, teaching people how to make jewelry with Scrabble tiles. And they just didn't understand. Like they yeah. didn't understand the journey. Um, and that's kind of how it all started. Well, uh, okay. So entrepreneurship, you teach entrepreneurship. That has been my life as well. Yeah. And yet I'm also a dad. And if I got the call saying, okay, Scrabble, origami, jewelry, we're going to knock it out of the park. That's right. it's probably not at the high list of opportunity in my thoughts. That is a funny story, but I, but I love that. I mean, so you understand uh, you know, parental pressure, but you know, a lot of people get that from a spouse, which, you know, on doing right. this other thing outside of, yeah, the secure, you know, real job, uh, so-called, uh, you understand that you understand, uh, yeah, the, the corporate handcuffs, the golden handcuffs as, as well, which obviously is huge as you walk with people. And I did, I watched some of your videos and know that as you're helping people with business, uh, it's a very heartfelt endeavor. I appreciated the personal stories. And so you've got yours. And I, I, I imagine that that is a primary asset as you're walking with people. You understand. 
Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, uh, I think it's, it's one of the things that I've learned, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is whoever it is that you model, whoever your mentor is in whatever area of life you're looking to improve. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they model how that person is acting today, mm-hmm. not how that person acted when they mm-hmm. were at the same life stage that you're at right now. And so I share that because, you know, here we're filming this in our office and our studio. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago where uh, I would quit my job at AIG. My wife was doing a PhD program in Hong Kong. So we had this crazy bi-country marriage where I was based in Shanghai. She's based in Hong Kong. We're seeing each other every couple of weeks. Uh, finally, I said, enough is enough. I want to, uh, we want to be together. And so we, 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 uh, I move into student housing. Um, we go through our savings. And the Scrabble tile business, it, it took off. It, it, we started making a couple thousand dollars a month. I think at our peak, we're making I was going to ask, I was going to go back there and say, okay, did that thing actually work? Because we're going to go from there to where, you know, to, to further into where you are today. So yeah, it, 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 you know, it worked, but I learned an important lesson, Kevin, which is um, the business took off. And the reason why we went into that space is, and this is an important lesson, is uh, I learned early on the importance of not trying to fall into the, not falling into the trap of if you build it, they will come. This lesson that one of my mentors taught me, he said, you know, Ryan, pioneers get shot, settlers get rich. And what he meant by that is you don't want to be the first in whatever market you're thinking about going into. You want to find somebody who has had success in that space and find a way to build a better mousetrap. If you look at the most successful companies in the world today, whether you look at Facebook or Google, Facebook wasn't the first social media uh, uh, platform. Google was not the first search engine. They simply built better mousetraps. They went into space where there was opportunity. So in this Scrabble tile space, it was my wife that found it. Tylene found it. Uh, she had found this site that had just uh, just started back in uh, at this time. It was a little site called Etsy.com, mm-hmm. which if you're not familiar, it's like eBay for handmade products. And, uh, and there's this craze happening. People were selling this jewelry made with Scrabble tiles and origami paper. And the original idea was, hey, we're in Asia. We have access to all this origami paper. We have access to uh, an inexpensive labor force. We could build a team to manufacture this jewelry and import it into the United States. Like that was the idea. And then I said, you know, gosh, this is so at odds with what we want to do. Like for, for us at the time, the thing that was really important was we wanted freedom. I didn't want to be chained to an office or chained to a, a factory. I wanted the ability uh, to travel, I wanted the ability to be with my wife. We wanted to be, have the ability to have some freedom in our life. Um, and so we, we kind of killed that idea. And I remember a few weeks later, Tylene said, uh, you know, I want to take a second look at that Scrabble tile thing. And she said, hear me out. And we found this woman on Etsy who wasn't selling the jewelry, but she was selling tutorials on how to make the jewelry. And the thing that was really powerful about Etsy and this lesson about uh, pioneers get shot, but settlers get rich is on Etsy.com, you could see at the time, I don't know if they still do this, you could see every single day how many sales someone was making on a given product. So you could look back, you could look back yesterday, the past week, you could see how many sales. And we found that this woman was selling about 20 of these tutorials a day at $25 a piece. We did the math. We said, gosh, that's like $500 a day. And there's no overhead. It's just a digital product. And we said, gosh, we could make $500 a day. Like, we can retire. Like, this is great. Like who would want any more than this? This is amazing. Um, And so that's what kind of sparked us. Now, Kevin, I learned another lesson, which is the importance of not falling into a fad market because as quickly as like this fad picked up, it fell off a cliff. And 
I quit my job. We went through our savings and we had that moment where we looked at each other. The business went back to zero and we said, crap, what do we do now? So you're not the guy who just started something, hit a home run, and now you're living on an island. I appreciate that as well, because uh, I don't know anybody that that actually happened to. No. So, well, so take us from that point. So, what was what was next? In what was the next? What was the next venture from that point? So we so we so we looked at each other. We had that moment. We said, okay, well, what are we going to do? We we're in student housing in Hong Kong. We didn't have much savings left, and so we said, here's what we're going to do. Um, we uh, sold everything we owned except for a suitcase each. And we moved back to the United States. And my wife, Tylene said, I'll finish my graduate program and I'll get a job. And she got a job at a museum as a museum curator uh, in Brownsville, Texas, which uh, you know, Austin, but Brownsville is right on the Mexican border uh, at the Brownsville Historical Association, which is about 500 feet from Matamoros, which is a, a million person city in Mexico on the other side of the border. And it's, a, it's an incredibly important historical trading port between Mexico in the United States that goes back hundreds of years. And so uh, it was an amazing opportunity for her um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a history, you know, someone who pursued history. Um, however, in that field, you can imagine there's, you don't earn a whole lot of money. Um, so her salary was something like $36,000 a year with benefits and insurance and everything. It was like $40,000 a year all in. And uh, we decide we're going to live on that salary and start a business. And so we had one little old car. We got a, uh, the cheapest apartment that we could find. There were bars on the windows. We had a mattress on the floor. The only furniture that we had was, uh, was these two lawn chairs. You know those, those chairs when you're on the side of the soccer game, when you're watching your kids yeah. or whatever, and it's like the soccer? They, they gave those away when you opened up a bank account. Um, and they, they gave you one, but my wife's a good negotiator, so she asked for two. That became our living room furniture. Um, and I drive my wife to and from work every single day. And in the meantime, uh, I, I would, you know, full time, 12, 14 hours a day, I started working on my business and I learned the lesson of not going into a fad market. And so I decided, uh, to, uh, explore market that was, uh, one of the longest, uh, lived hobbies in America and the two oldest hobbies in America, the things that I thought would be the, the least risk of disappearing were number one, reading right? Um, books. And Amazon kind of had that pretty, pretty much on lockdown. Um, and number two is gardening. Gardening has been the number one or number two uh, most popular hobby in America uh, uh, for over 200 years. And so I said, there's an opportunity to go somewhere in this space. And so we eventually kind of made a list of all the possible niches and, and, and sub niches in the gardening space. And we settled on uh, the orchid care space. And the way we settled on orchid care is when we lived in China, we made a big list of all the things we had done like throughout our whole life. And um, as a kid, I sold vegetables in the neighborhood and things like that. Uh, but in China, um, we had a whole bunch of orchids at one point in, one, in, a, in the apartment that I lived in. We bought a whole bunch of orchids and like within less than a week, they all died. And so we kind of put it on that list of things that people struggle with. Mm-hmm. And when we started doing a little bit of research in the market, started using the power of surveys, which we we can talk a little bit more. I discovered that there was an unmet need. There was a disproportionate, of people, disproportionate number of people online looking for help in this space and who weren't getting answers. And so long story short, went into that business and using uh, a process that's now come to be known as the ask method, which involves a series of questions and surveys and research and putting people into buckets and a few steps we'll talk about. We took that business from nothing to $25,000 a month in about 18 months. Uh, my wife quit her job. 
Uh, we moved from Brownsville to Austin, Texas, which is where we've been for uh, almost the last 10 years now. Uh, launched another business in the memory improvement space using the same process. I had to, I had to make my parents proud that I was using the neuroscience in some way, shape, or form. Uh, took that business to over half a million dollars a year. Wow. And then over the course of the next decade, uh, launched 23 different businesses, went into 23 different markets using this Ask Method process. And uh, a few years ago, um, uh, kind of switched gears completely and began focus on teaching this same process to entrepreneurs who want to launch and grow their own business online, just like we have. Okay. So I do want to ask, obviously, shamelessly about the ask method. I mean, that's what you are, it looks like most known for. I know you from that. Mm -hmm. And I believe I saw you promote something from a guy I'm going to mention in just a second, because some of the concept I was made privy to back, I'm going to guess 2004, 2005, Alex Mandosian. Um, yeah, what, what's so interesting about this is, so Alex is a good friend of mine and yeah. uh, I consider, I class Alex as a mentor. He's a good friend. And Alex is, uh, gosh, he's one of the, he's one of the, we call him the OGs, right? He's one of the, the godfathers of the practice of online business and online marketing. Yeah. And he's still practicing today. Um, Alex has had a huge impact on my life and i and, um, grateful to be able to class him as a friend. But you're absolutely right. Alex uh, has been doing this, gosh, since the turn of the century, since the, the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, we did. My dad and I, Dan Miller, uh, 48 Days to the Work You Love author, we did. We were looking at doing teleseminars back then, and we did, paid for and did one of uh, Alex's webinars. And, and he talked to us about asking, in this sense, it was just for the price to go out, ask your folks, you know, what, at what price would this seem too cheap? What, what price too expensive? And we were looking at doing, it was a, a teleseminar on how to write a, uh, I think it was on writing a book at that point. And we were going to do 1999. Our survey came back and it hit us at right the sweet spot, 67 bucks. And we did that and made more money on any, you know, one type thing than we'd ever done at that point. And it was back to that, back to asking. And yet here I am all these years later. And as I've been reading up on you, the biggest thought I've had is, man, I am not taking advantage of this. I am not doing that. And you make it sound so simple. If you want to provide something, just ask people what they want. I literally am in a business right now. And I thought we have not done that well. It's prime for this. And we haven't gone and asked people. And, and I, you know, in the aspect too, of what are the problems that you want to solve? And I like that. And so I do, I want you to, I want you to hit on that some, because it's not just as simple as right. asking, you know, ask, what right. do you want? Because they often don't know what they want. And, and you talk some about that, but ask them. And you, I saw that in your, in some of the content, ask them what the problems are they want to solve. So you have taken that to so many business and you make it sound simple. I guess we can't say easy, but simple. Yes. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Yeah, you know, I think it's like it's like most things in life. It's like you pick up, you know, you have your, um, you know, this is a, an iPhone 10 right here, right? And on the surface, you look at this iPhone, it's it's so simple. There are no buttons, right? Yeah. It's just it's so elegant. Um, but the the hundreds of thousands of hours that went into producing this and all the little component parts and the complexity that's within within this, um, the ask method is is where I've invested my you know twenty or thirty thousand hours and and I think what most people say when they go through this uh, they go through the process is it's simplicity on the far side of complexity okay. and so the ask method is really a process that a lot of people get it's it's a simple idea right which is 
uh, asking the right questions in the right way to figure out exactly what it is that people want to buy in your market, and then to uncover what we call are the different buckets that exist in your market so you can tailor your messaging to each of those groups of people. Now, like most things in life, the devil's in the details and it's all about the nuances. And part of the reason for that is it's not as simple as just asking people what they want and giving it to them. So you've probably heard me talk about this before, but for someone listening to this, you know, there's often a, an objection that I hear about this point when I bring it up and they say, but wait, Henry Ford said, right. if I asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. Faster horses. And, and talking about this iPhone here, Steve Jobs is famous for saying, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And the reason, Kevin, those quotes ring true is because they are true. It's not as simple as asking people what they want, because frankly, people don't know what they want. We don't know what we want. We can speculate. We can guess what we think it is that we might want. But as human beings, if we look at our psychology, we're not good at knowing what it is that we want. If I asked you, if I said, you know, uh, uh, Kevin, if you could imagine the most perfect house, the most perfect home, we we're talking about you and your wife and, and plans that you guys are, are thinking about. And I said, you know, if you could think the most perfect uh, cabin retreat or the perfect home away from home, if you were to make the move that we're talking about, what might that look like? Well, you're going to speculate. You're going to say, oh, gosh, it would be great to have this and be great to have this. Yeah, but it's all speculation. But if instead I said, all right, Kevin, if there's one thing about the home you live in right now, maybe something in the kitchen, maybe something in the garage that kind of just bugs you, that's annoying, that's frustrating, that your next home you want to make sure doesn't have that problem, what might that be? I, I have that list. I've written that out. No, no lie, because we built our house. So it's even more acute. I was going, why did I make that closet so small? It's the dumbest closet. So yes, absolutely. And yet if you ask me, what do I want? Totally. I don't know, but I know that list. Absolutely. I live high up in the Rocky Mountains where the air is clean and fresh as possible, but then I step indoors and I'm breathing in untold amounts of toxins and allergens from paint and carpet and cleaning chemicals and pets and furniture and appliances and mold and so on. Studies show the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air anywhere you are. And in some places it's a hundred times worse than that. Well, the solution is to get an air purifier and air doctor is just the best out there. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen and pet dander and dust mites and mold and even bacteria and viruses. So your lungs don't have to try to do that. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com. You can use the promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get the special deal, go to AIR. D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot com. Use promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading 
e-commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they're hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. And so, so it, it kind of gets at the, the, the philosophy of this, which is that people don't know what they want, but they do know what they, what they don't want. And okay. so as you think about what questions to ask your audience, your market, to figure out not only what to create, what to sell, but the words in which you should use to describe that thing it all starts with making sure you're asking questions that people can accurately answer. And there are only two types of questions. So these are the, this is the first writer downer for everything that we're talking about. So the first is finding out what it is that people don't want. And the way you can ask that is by asking about their frustration, their challenge, the struggle that they've had with the thing they're doing, the thing they're using now or the service they're using now or the experience they've had up until this date. So that's the first thing. The second thing that people are really good at answering uh, are questions around past behavior. Things like, how much money have you spent so far to try to solve this problem? See, questions like that are indicators to understand how acute, how big of a problem is the thing you're asking about. All things being equal, if someone says, I haven't spent any money trying to solve this problem, versus someone who says, gosh, I must have spent, I don't know, $10,000, $20,000 trying to solve this, who do you think is more likely to invest money in a solution for the thing that you're intending on solving. The person who hasn't spent a penny or the person who's made a demonstrated investment in that area of their life or business. So see how these questions kind of don't give the answer. You can't ask someone, what should I sell and how much should I sell it for? And what should I say on my website? But you can ask these questions that come in through the side door. They come in through the side door and they give you the answers as an entrepreneur that you can then take and use to inform the market you go into, the products that you sell, the language to use on your website, how to describe what it is that you're selling. So you can echo in a way that uh, describes better than your market can even describe it to themselves, 
the problem that they're trying to solve. And that's an so, important one. The nuance of that language is so important. Okay. So, uh, just yesterday, so I did a show with Tom Ziegler, CEO yep. of Ziegler yesterday, and he talked about that. I mean, Ziegler is about goals, 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 right. goals. Everybody knows that it's about goals. And yet he uh, had an experience and we're going to talk about it on a coming show. So I'll tickle everybody's ears with that, that he said really about, if you take the populace, about 20, 20% of the population or 20% of people think in terms of goals. Here's something I want to achieve, something I desire that I want to, uh, that I want to get to. The other 80% think in terms of problems. So he's talking about this yesterday. I'm sitting there thinking about myself because I think about myself as, hey, I'm, I am a goal setting guy. Not really. I think about problems I want to solve. At the end of the day, when my wife's saying, hey, tell me what happened, I'm telling her a list of problems that I solved. They help me achieve goals. But so you're taking us to that. And so in essence, I'm saying you're talking to the biggest part of the population right here that does understand their goals. It's, it's a perfect analogy of what you're talking about. And it feels like, okay, from your filter, I imagine you're looking at all of us, the sea of entrepreneurs. There's a zillion of us out there, business owners. And you're saying, one, you're probably hitting us with, you're not asking. You're not asking what people want, first off. And two, if right. you are asking, if you got that note somewhere, got that memo, you're probably asking incorrectly. Right. Is that, and that's is that the thing. Yeah. You're, 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 you're hitting the nail on the head. You know, this concept is simple in principle, right? Um, it's, it's, it's nuanced in its application. So I'll give you another example. So talk about the orchid business. So, um, that's a business where I, I was first really introduced to this idea of asking what it is that people want. And so, um, one of my mentors, um, who's actually a student of Alex, uh, his name is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He was one of the first people that uh, I learned a tremendous amount from. And, And Glenn Livingston is a, is a, is a PhD. Um, who would apply these deep market research uh, uh, practices in companies like AT&T and Novartis and Nabisco and these big multi-billion dollar brands. Um, And he decided to take what he was doing there and teach other entrepreneurs how to implement it. And so uh, he's one of the people I've learned a tremendous amount from. He's a mentor early in my career. Um, I studied under him. I I, I worked one-on-one with him. We've partnered in various businesses. And so one of the things I learned from him was the importance of using surveys. And so um, I went into this orchid market and I knew very little. I wasn't an orchid expert, right? So this is one of the big objections I hear people say, but but I'm not an expert in my in my market. Can I still succeed? I knew th- my level of expertise in the orchid market was I knew how to buy a bunch of orchids and kill them in a matter of a week. That was like my <laughs> expertise. Um, and you know, so now I know the difference between a dendrobium and an oncidium and a pathiopetalum and a phalaenopsis, and I know all the orchid varieties, and we have an entire business around this whole this premise. But when I first went into this market, I knew nothing. So I said, all right, let's survey the market. Let's reach out and ask people when it comes to caring for your orchids, what's your biggest question? And the most common question when I did this that came up over and over and over again was watering. How to water? When to water? How much water? And I said, gosh, this is easy. Ask people what they want, give it to them. So I created a guide on how to water your orchid step-by-step. I sold it to the same people who told me this is exactly what their number one question was. And Kevin, I promptly sold zero copies. Okay. And I thought, okay, well, what, what did I do wrong? What did I, what did I miss? And so I went back to the data one more time. And what I found was that there was a small minority of responses and their responses sounded very different. Their responses to the survey sounded more like this. They would say things like, 
Ryan, I've been caring for orchids for years, and every time my orchid outgrows its pot and I try to repot it, I kill the darn thing. And gosh, I'm doing everything right. I wash my hands. I sterilize my tools. I know I'm not supposed to use glazed porcelain pots because I know the glaze is toxic to the delicate orchid roots. And yet, every single time, I'm killing the thing. What am I doing wrong? Now, compare that response to how to water, when to water, how much water. And it's there that I discovered, it was an aha moment for me. It was there that I discovered something I now call the myth of the FAQ. And the soundbite, the thing to write down is this. Depth of response is actually more important than frequency of response. And what that means is when you're asking questions, it's not just about asking the right questions. It's also paying attention to the right answers. Not all answers are created equal. And so what you're looking for here are the hype, what we call the hyper-responsive segments or buckets that exist in your market. And so what I found in the orchid care space is that there are four hyper-responsive buckets, four profit pools within this market. If there are millions of people who are caring for their orchids, there's only four groups of them that I focus on 100% in my business. People who have tried to repot the orchid and have killed it. People who have orchid with flowers, but the flowers have fallen off and they want to get the flower, they want to get it to rebloom. People who have an orchid that specifically has developed yellow leaves. And the fourth group is specifically moms who have gotten orchids from their sons, usually for Valentine's Day or Mother's Day as a gift. Those are the four groups of hyper-responsive orchid growers that we built our entire business around. And here's the key. We ignore everyone else. The reason we're so successful is because we learned how to ask the right questions to identify what these buckets are. And for someone listening to this, whatever market you're in right now, you have the same equivalent of a few of these hyper-responsive buckets that exist in your market that are more passionate, more willing to spend money, more willing to become lifelong fans than everybody else. And the key is identifying who they are and focusing everything that you do to serve those specific buckets. That was a huge takeaway that transformed everything for me, Kevin. And it's been a hallmark of what's now the ask method and the 23 markets that we've had the opportunity to have success in using this process. Well, and we're obviously, you know, here today to get your personal story, but then to understand this process, I want to understand this process. I did not dig in prior to this because I wanted to come at it just like all of our listeners, or at least the ones who don't know of you yet, who haven't already experienced you, which I'm sure there's a bunch that have, but to understand this, because it is, it's a, as you said earlier, it's a simple process, but I'm hearing real quickly, this is complex because for me to come in and look at any number of my business and ask me, okay, who are, who are your hyper-responsive folks? I, I can't tell you one thing right off the bat. Now, if I get pen and paper and thought, maybe I could come up with a little bit. Obviously, I assume that that's what you're going to help us do uh, with the with the ask method is understand those people, and then from them is where we derive the appropriate questions. Yes, absolutely. Everything is derived from there. So it all starts with asking the right questions to identify those groups of people. Once you identify who those groups of people, you answer the most important question in business, which is not what, as in what am I going to sell, but who am I going to serve? Who is this person? Once you identify that, then from there, you can decide what are the challenges, obstacles, struggles? What are the things that they're looking to you to solve in their life? Whether you're selling a physical product, 
a service as a consultant, if you're a teacher teaching something, if you're an expert or a publisher of information, whatever it is that you sell, you are solving a problem in some way, shape or form for your market. And so it all cascades from there. But it begins with asking. And, you know, the challenge with asking is, as they say in life, in life, the answers are easy, but the questions are hard. And if you have eight hours, like Abraham Lincoln, to chop down that tree, the first six hours of those eight hours should be spent figuring out the right questions to ask. And it's a step that most people just jump right into. They skip that part. And the ask method, the process that we that we teach, that we that we um, that I've implemented in so many different markets, is all about figuring out those right questions and then following the right process to identify who those hypers are, and then carrying forth that language that they use when you communicate with them in your messaging. And when you do this right, Kevin, you can create this this reaction, this response in people's minds where they say, "Gosh, it's like, it's like, have you read a page out of my diary?" Have you been spying on us at the dinner table? Because gosh, it's like you can describe what I've been trying to put words to better than even I can describe it myself. And once you create that response in someone's brain, the only question they have for you is, all right, Kevin, so what should I do about it? And that's where you come in as the trusted advisor to recommend the right resource, the right product, the right uh, next step for them to take based on that situation. Okay, I want to uh, come around and ask about you and your own purpose and motive in this somewhat. And I'm going to use an analogy of my myself in that uh, many years ago, I got involved in the publishing world and I saw so many great messages uh, in yep. this sense in book form. Great stuff. I'd go to the book conventions where the dealers go and I'd come back with loads of books and I'd read stuff that were it was just a lot of them were in a Christian format in that standpoint. And I thought, man, this is an anointed message. I mean, this this person knows that this was this is a profound message. I'm reading this, it's changing my life. And yet, just by looking at the cover, as the as the cliche goes, this is not gonna sell. This is crap. It's a crappy cover. And it burdened me to see this great message get shot down. And I know this person's probably onto the next book because they only sold 2,000 copies of the thing and they're going on. That's a shame. So I entered in that world of, help, of helping uh, uh, authors with their branding, with their positioning, with their, with their cover. And so coming back to you, Obviously, you got into orchids because you saw, hey, there's a good opportunity here, gardening, whatnot. It may not have been the calling and passion of your life in and of itself with orchids. But as I looked at some of the testimonials uh, on your website and looked at some of the things you're involved in, the stories that I saw harkened back to what I experienced, what I just shared a second ago, that the people you seem to gravitate towards or are, can I say, proud of, it looks like, are the people who have something they deeply care about, a business that they care about, or a business that is helping them achieve something over here in their life that they significantly care about. And you are freeing them up or giving them the opportunity to knock it out of the ballpark with that. And the stories you've got are tearjerkers. And so I'm wondering, just on your own personal journey, when did you, when was the spark of, Hey, I can actually help people make money. That's great. But I, I can impact their lives through this. The, the turning point for me, Kevin was really simple. It, was, it happened six years ago. Okay. So you're right. That orchid business, the uh, Scrabble top business. The reason why I went into those spaces truthfully 
is because I realized I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. I knew I wanted a business. I didn't know what it was. And so I took the, the thing that unlocked it for me. And I was one of these entrepreneurs who just spun his wheels at the beginning. Like I was like, do I do this? Do I open up an import export company in China? Do I open up a restaurant? My wife and I at one point started baking cupcakes. We thought, gonna, we thought we we're going to open up a cupcake shop in Shanghai. Um, we were all over the map. And I realized, you know what? What I need to do is this. Uh, Kevin, I need a practice business. It's one of the pieces of advice that I give to a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out that first business. I said, I need a practice business. I need a vehicle that is going to teach me how to build a business. Because look, it, I could I could take uh, $150,000, I could invest it in an MBA and go to a top school, get an MBA, yeah. or I could take a tiny fraction of that amount of money and invest it in you know, Facebook advertising, invest it in building a website, investing in learning skills and actually doing it. And I said, I'm probably going to learn more doing it than I am spending $150,000 on an MBA. Uh, and so I said, I'm just going to have a practice business and, and this will be my vehicle. It's like the first car we all learned to drive in. For most of us, it's not the car we're driving now, but it served the purpose to teach us how to drive, right? And so um, it was the vehicle that was going to teach me how to drive. Fast forward to six years ago, and I was a very different place in my life. Um, I had had, you know, fortunate to have all the success in, in all these different markets, but I wasn't a teacher. Um, I wasn't, nobody knew who I was. Um, I wasn't having, you know, the type of impact that I thought I might have in the world. And uh, something happened in my life that changed my life forever. So six years ago, my first son was born. And it was after my first son was born that uh, I started um, mysteriously losing weight. So you look at me right here on the video, I weigh about 185 pounds right now. Uh, I started losing weight and I dropped down to about 130 pounds. So 55 pounds lighter than I am right now. And uh, we didn't know what was going on. And uh, I was tired all the time. I was worn out. And, you know, honestly, I just thought, gosh, um, I'm a new dad. Remember those days, right? Staying up all night, you know, putting the kiddos to bed, like up all night, uh, running a business at the same time, not eating and exercising as healthy as I thought I might want to want to be. And so I just attributed it to all those things. And it was around that time that my wife, Tylene, said, all right, Ryan, um, your, your father now, uh, you need to apply for life insurance. You know, gosh, if anything were to happen to you, you, you know, you're taking care of not just me, but you've got a, you know, an, another life. And so um, I applied for life insurance apply for life insurance um, and bring the medical examiner to the house, do all the things, mm -hmm. take some blood, do the lab results. Um, and then I go off on a business trip and come back a couple, maybe about a week and a half later. Um, and um, I have a, a, a letter waiting for me in the mail from the life insurance company. And the, I open up the letter as soon as I get back home. And the letter, Kevin, reads, denied. Denied wow. coverage. I just turned 30 years old. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, the only way you get denied life insurance is if you're like on dialysis or if you have cancer, like it's, yeah. you can be a, a chain smoker, overweight and an alcoholic, and you can still get life insurance. It's only for like really serious stuff. So I pick up the phone, I call the life insurance agent, and I explain what happened. And he said, um, uh, I, I thought it was a mistake. I, I said, oh, they, there's been a mistake. I got someone else's letter in the mail. The, you know, results got crossed or whatever. And he says, Ryan, it's not a mistake. And in fact, um, uh, you're going to want to sit down. So he had his, the lab results, which I didn't have yet in his hand. He said, I'm going to read you your lab results. And he said, um, I'm not a doctor, but I think you might want to go see one. So I hang up the phone. Um, and then I, I made what I describe as the biggest mistake of my life, which is I went to Google to Google what the lab results meant. And the results that came back were uh, kidney failure, renal system shutdown, pancreatic cancer. Wow. 
just turned 30 years old. I've had a six-month baby at home. And I'm saying, what just happened? And so I tell my wife that night. She asked me casually, said, I saw the letter from the life insurance company. Is everything all set? We're all good? And I said, honey, no, I don't think so. Uh, We need to talk. And so she starts, she breaks down. Um, We schedule an appointment uh, with the doctors. The very first thing in the next morning, um, go see the doctor, explain him what happens. I still think it's a mistake. And they said, well, let's order some lab results. We'll be able to corroborate this stat. Wait in the weight room. We're going to do this, you know, stat. So we wait in the weight room. And I remember the doctor, when he came back out, I remember it like it was yesterday. He walked out and he grabs me by the shoulders. He says, Mr. Levesque, you need to go to the emergency room and you can't drive. We've got to get you there now. And come to find out, Kevin, uh, I had fallen to a state known as DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. And I was what the doctors describe as days from slipping into a coma. Um, My kidneys were shutting down. My pancreas had stopped working. Um, I was urinating blood. Uh, I had uh, basically my entire uh, body was shutting down. And the reason why I lost all that weight is because I lost the ability to metabolize food. So my body was just eating muscle tissue. And if you see pictures of me from these days, you, it's not night and day, like you wouldn't even recognize me. And it's just funny, the stories we tell each other, tell ourselves, right? Like, oh, I'm just a dad. I'm not getting enough exercise. I'm not eating enough. I'm not getting enough sleep. This is the reason why. So I spent the next 10 days in intensive care in ICU where they pumped me back full of fluids and, and brought me back. And what had, what we came to find out was that at 30 years old, I was an undiagnosed juvenile diabetic. I was an undiagnosed type one diabetic and my body had shut down. And so I, 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 I take people through this exercise that was something shared to me by one of my mentors, Victoria LeBaum. It's this exercise that went through my head and she takes people through this, but I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're in a hospital bed like this and you're by yourself and you're having this experience that the doctors come in and they say, um, and this was what was going through my head. The doctors come in and they say, Kevin, we've done everything we can. Um, There's nothing else for us to do. It's time to say your goodbyes. Just imagine the people you love most in this world, one by one, coming to say their goodbyes to you. And then finally, the last person you say goodbye to is a small person in your life. It's a little person. It's a kiddo. It's a grandkid, a niece or nephew. And you have one final piece of advice, one final word of wisdom to share with that person as your parting words on earth. What do you say? And for me, it was as clear as day when I had this vision. It was live and love fully and leave it all on the field. That was, it just was clear as day to me. And I realized that if I get out of this hospital bed, that I want to make a much bigger impact than I've made in the world so far. And if I'm going to do it, I've got to do it now because none of us are promised tomorrow. And so I got out of that hospital. I decided to give myself the biggest kick in the butt, got into the best health of my life, made the decision to reveal how... I, what I consider to be my f- secret family recipe, how I'd had success in all these markets. And instead of doing what I had done to share this message and teach it with as many entrepreneurs in the world as possible. And that was six years ago. And I've been running hundred miles an hour ever since. And it was that realization that none of us are promised tomorrow. And that experience of identifying what I have learned is called your through line. The thing that transcends everything you do in life. And for me, my through line, when I went through that exercise, it was clear as day, live in love fully and leave it all in the field.
And that's what my aim is to do, to leave it all in the field, to impact as many people as I can, to get this in as many entrepreneurs' hands as possible, because I know this is something that it's a gift that I've had the privilege of learning from my mentors, and I just want to pass it along because it's transformed my family's life, and I've seen how it's transformed the lives of so many entrepreneurs that uh, I've had the opportunity to work with since then. I could not script a better climax to the show than right there. If I say much more, it's just going to wreck it. And folks, that that's what we wanted to bring you into. That's why we've got Ryan on the show is to take that, that heart, to take that, uh, that methodology of the ask method and to help you. I mean, you're talking about legacy work right here. And that is what Ziggler's about to have success in your business so that you can do what you want to do big picture wise there. So askmethod.com slash Ziggler is where you can go connect with Ryan. And, and on that, uh, you know, that's what we want everybody to go there, obviously to get involved with this because there's none of us. If we have a business, there's nobody that doesn't need to do this. I'm going to do that. I have a business right now that needs this as a, as a, as a major part of our launch uh, in that, but where else can people just connect with you also on a personal level? I know you've got a Facebook page, uh, anything else that you would throw out to us? Yeah, gosh, you know, the, uh, that ask, uh, the link that you just gave is, yep. is really, um, a great place to connect. And here's the reason why this is something, uh, we do something called this ask method workshop where we take people through this whole ask method process that we've been talking yep. about at a high level. And it's something we do once a year. That is the absolute best place to connect with me. Um, if you want to kind of see what's going on in my, my personal life, and uh, I know you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you see my, uh, my kiddo smiling on, on my Facebook page. You can yeah. follow me on Facebook. If you just uh, search for Ryan Levesque on Facebook, it's spelled L-E-V-E-S-Q-U-E. Um, you'll see my, my face and you'll see my two little um, knucklehead uh, munchkins uh, doing some shenanigans and some videos and, 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 and pictures and stuff like that. But I do a daily post there as well. Um, and it's another great place to, to follow what's going on. Okay. And folks, I want you to know too, that in this once per year opportunity he's talking about here, you'll come in there and you're going to join pretty much, if not the entire Ziegler team and family, everybody's involved. I saw stuff recently. You were with Kevin Harrington. You're doing stuff with Mark Tim uh, and the, the entire Ziegler industry, the corporate, I mean, we're all involved in this. So come in there and you're going to see us there and we're there as students. Uh, we're promoting this thing, but we're there as students. So Ryan, man, thank you. Thanks for sharing your heart, your story. And thanks for bringing this to us. Thank you for bringing it to me. I'll speak first person because I need this. Uh, I, I've been missing that. I have not been utilizing this method enough in my own business. So uh, thanks for your help to me and to our entire audience. Kevin, it's been an honor. Really grateful for the opportunity and looking forward to having the opportunity to chat again too. Well, all right, friends, I am confident you're now wondering who are your hyper-responsive customers and what are their primary problems that you can solve for them? Uh, you're probably already solving some of those. You're just not giving focus to that to draw in more and more people. Ryan can help you in this once-per-year masterclass. Again, that the entire Ziegler team is taking with you, will be taking with you. Go to Ask method.com slash Ziggler and check it out. And Hey, if you got value from this show, please let Ryan and us know, leave a review in iTunes and mention the specific show and what you got out of it. Uh, our next show is incredible. I'll tell you about it after I share again, some great resources. Well, coming up next in show 594, we hear from Zig Ziggler. It's a really short message where he asks the question, 
If you owned a million dollar racehorse, would you keep it up half the night, giving it booze, cigarettes, and junk food? And if you did, how many races do you think it would win? Would you even treat your dog or cat that way? Well, what about yourself? And that's the punchline there. It's a short, hard-hitting message. From it, we asked on Facebook this question. What are three key ways you take good care of your physical and mental well-being, treating yourself like a high-valued performer? We got a truckload of responses. Tom Ziegler and I shared our own keys uh, for success there and read through a lot of the responses. It was really, really powerful. Uh, Hey, on that note, I invite you, you can join these weekly discussions. Just find me on Facebook at Agent K, as in Kevin, Agent K Miller, and uh, you can friend me there and be a part of these. Well, hey, till next time then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.